You're listening to Governance 360, a link group podcast hosted by me, Lindsay Dowd. Hello, everyone, and I'm delighted to welcome you to our next link podcast. Joining our internal capital markets expert, Kit Atkinson, today we're delighted to welcome Charlie Walker of the London Stock Exchange. And we're going to be exploring today the London Stock Exchange as a listing venue of choice. Charlie is head of equity primary markets for the London Stock Exchange. He's a capital market specialist with over 11 years of experience working in JP Morgan Casino's equity markets team, where he's responsible for originating and executing equity transactions. Hello. Welcome, Charlie. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So perhaps you could just give us a bit more flavour for what, what you what you do at the London Stock Exchange within sure. within your job title. Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, we uh, have a team, um, which I'm responsible for, called the Equity Primary Markets Team. Um, and our team has a few functions. Um, firstly, we help private companies that are on the journey to, to going public. Um, so we're often meeting with them. You know, three, four, five years um, ahead of an IPO um, to sort of help them normally gather information on what the IPO process is and what public markets are, are like in London. Um, we also then maintain relationships with our existing listed companies and we now have uh, built an issuer services platform um, which helps us maintain some of those relationships. Um, we help launch projects on behalf of the exchange and we work with other teams within the exchange to help help do that. So uh, the London Shanghai Connect project is something that launched um, about three months ago uh, or so now, so we were, we were heavily involved in that. Um, and then finally, we feed into you know, any consultations or anything that we think is going to impact public markets um, in the UK. So that could be regulatory changes or corporate governance changes or, or anything like that. And we work with our government relations team and with our regulations team within the exchange um, uh, to make sure that, um, to make sure that our, our, our voice is being heard in those, in those debates. Thank you. So, if it's okay with you, Charlie, we're going to run through uh, various questions. Yeah. Um, we're de- delighted for your thoughts and insight um, on these topical issues. So, just looking um, in terms of the appetite at the moment of, of companies to certainly there's a lot of acquisition uh, going on in the UK at the moment. Um, UK companies are, are seen as attractive targets. Uh, but in terms of companies actually listing on the London Stock Exchange, what, what do you see as the key benefits, particularly from an international perspective? Um, so I think in the conversations that we have, companies typically are looking for a few things when they're, when they're looking at listing. Um, they want to access capital markets where there's global liquidity. Um, and on most metrics, the London Stock Exchange is one of, if not the largest exchange, um, certainly in Europe, um, and one of the top three exchanges in, in the world. Um, so in the first half of this year, we had $25 billion of capital raised, um, and that was just behind the two, the two US exchanges. Um, so that's, that's quite an important, important feature for companies looking to access the markets. We have at the moment just over 2,000 companies listed um, on the LSE, and they have a market capitalization of just over £5 trillion. So it's you know that is a very large pool um, of capital for for companies to uh, to access. I think, from an international perspective, the thing that continues to attract uh, those companies to London is actually London is just a hugely international place to do business. Um, at the moment, about forty percent or just under forty percent of the companies on the LSE don't have their primary operations in the UK. Um, that's one of the highest constituencies of any exchange any exchange in the world. Um, if you look at 
uh, where the earnings are generated, the FTSE 100, now 70% of the earnings are generated outside of the UK. So what it means is that when companies are bringing their stories to London and they're meeting with investors, you know, investors aren't reluctantly investing in these businesses that may have operations in Africa or the Middle East or China. Um, it's quite the opposite. They're meeting with investors who are often managing global portfolios um, who have an active interest and desire to invest in these international locations. Um, and so, you know, that, that is quite a, that's quite a, a big draw to London. I think what we also tend to find is that um, when companies are coming here, um, I don't think you can underestimate the, um, uh, the regard in which the regulatory framework is, 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 is held uh, in the UK. You know, the certainty of a regulatory framework that is, um, that is transparent um, and that is seen to be fair is a huge draw to companies. Um, and, and, you know, the, the number of companies we've been seeing come from international locations into London has, 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 has certainly been you know, very strong. Uh, in the first half of this year, three out of the five largest companies um, that IPO'd on the exchange were actually international businesses. So that's, that's, that's not a trend that we're, we're seeing sort of going anywhere. We think that's going to continue to build. Um, I think the other aspect in terms of just the international nature of London is actually also the, the willingness to partner with other markets. Um, and that is a key differentiator versus other, other um, markets around the world. And again, when I say markets, I don't actually mean just the exchange. I mean, government and the regulator and the exchange and the advisory community as well. Um, the London Shanghai Connect project is a prime example of that. Um, so that, you know, we started working on that four years ago. Um, that was initially actually instigated by the British government and by the Chinese government um, who tasked the exchanges to go and build um, a or explore a link between the two markets. Um, it's required cooperation with the FCA, um, with the Chinese regulators, and indeed with ourselves and the Shanghai Stock Exchange. And it's for the first time ever that a non-Chinese company is able to list their share directly on to the Shanghai Stock Exchange. Um, and that share can be traded in renminbi, it can be bought by investors in China, free of the normal capital controls that are applied. Um, and likewise, it's a two-way program. So companies that are listed on the Shanghai Stock Exchange can, for the first time ever, list their A share onto an international market, and it's the same share. We use the GDR structure in London, but it's, it's an A share that underlies it. So investors are able to purchase a share in London, and they're able to instruct their broker to sell that same share for them in Shanghai, and vice versa. Um, and that is, that is an enormous project. Um, we had the first company use it, um, a company called Huatai Securities. Um, they used it on the launch day of the program, um, which was in the middle of June this year. So it's a relatively new program. Um, and they raised $1.7 billion of capital alongside it, um, which at the time was the largest um, capital raised by a Chinese company globally um, outside of China. So it's, it's, um, it's a big project. And I think it's a good example. You know, and, and, and we see dual listings with other exchanges a lot, right? We've got mm -hmm. a lot of London TSX dual listed companies, a lot of London Johannesburg dual listed companies. Um, we're working with Kenya at the moment um, on uh, their privatization. Um, ADRs. ADRs. New York. Yeah. So I, I think we, you know, we, we certainly take the view that um, uh, we're very happy to partner with other markets to the benefit of both capital markets. And I think that's something that has, has stood us in good stead. 
I mean, the one other thing that I had in mind was the, the concentration of practitioners. You know, there's mm. a, a requir- required critical mass f- to support the, the network of advisors, lawyers, accountants, and they do see London certainly as a European hub, if not a, if not a global one. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's across industries, across sectors um, as well. There's just that required specialization here, particularly for those niche markets, um, resource-focused yeah. companies. And it, it, you're right. I think it, I think there's an efficiency point as well. You know, if, if you're doing an IPO roadshow, you know, you'll typically go to London, New York, Boston. Um, it's 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 extremely efficient for a business to be able to access you know, not just the advisory community in London, but also actually a, a huge amount of the investor community. Mm-hmm. Even if they're global funds, they will typically have offices in London uh, with representatives in London. And of course, you've got cultural differences at play as well, particularly with regard to uh, European markets. The UK, the Anglo-Saxon model is based around an equity investor community um, as opposed to a debt-driven one. Um, yeah, that's right. So it, it makes sense. You're raising equity. You you do it in London. Yeah, that's, that's certainly what we're certainly what we're seeing at the moment, and we hope continues. <laughs> So this, um, just to draw on what you, what you, some of the comments you've just made, Charlie. Um, interesting, particularly I'm thinking around the regulatory framework mm. and the concentration of advisors. Yeah. So how would the London Stock Exchange, or how does it seek to differentiate itself from um, the main competitor exchanges, for example, um, the New York Stock Exchange? Yeah. So I think there's a few uh, differences. So. Uh, for starters, we, we we tend to take the view at the LSE, and I think this is you know, this is a view that has been developed over decades, if not centuries, of of of, of history now. Um, that a sort of a one size fits all model doesn't necessarily work, um, and you need to have bespoke offerings to suit different companies in different situations. And this is kind of this is on the equity side and on the debt side. Um, and that is, it's unusual that it is so developed. I think if you look at most international exchanges, um, you know, the, the plethora of offerings that actually exist in London doesn't necessarily um, translate into other markets. So as an example, we have our AIM market, um, our alternative investment market, which is focused purely on small and mid-cap you know, growth companies. Um, and that recognises that those companies need a different set of uh, rules and investors and advisors than necessarily large cap companies do. Um, if you look at um, if you look at uh, on the debt side, if you look at ISM, for instance, the international securities market, again, that's a new debt offering. That's a new debt market that um, the exchange launched um, two years ago now, which has been very successful. Recognizing that com- not all companies want to issue debt in the same way, and you need to have a couple of offerings there. Um, we have the specialist funds segment. Um, you know, we have a huge funds business. It's now 150 years old on the LSE, and that was designed to provide um, issuers uh, of funds with another choice in the market. Um, even if you look at the main market, we've got the standard segment and the premium segment. Um, and so I guess we, you know, we, we, we take the view that, you know, different investors want to be able to invest in different types of companies at different points in their life cycle, and therefore having one market which is homogenous doesn't necessarily serve everyone's purposes. And I think that's that's definitely a key differentiator of of, of London versus you know any market actually around the world, I think. Uh, I can't think of many that have that same same sort of proliferation of, of offerings. Um, 
you know, we've we've spoken a little bit about it previously, but I also think that um, the international nature of London is a key differentiator versus uh, versus any other markets. And, and you mentioned New York. I think that's true there as well. Um, you know, if I take the US as an example, if you take the S&P 500, 67% of their earnings are generated in the US. You know, like I say, 70% of the FTSE 100 earnings are generated outside of the UK. So it's almost it's almost <clears throat> an inverse um, mm-hmm. relationship. Um, if you look at investors that invest in um, stocks listed in the US, 85% of them are physically based in the US. Right, so it's US and fund managers. So the scale investing of the in. market makes it more naturally insular. Yeah, they, of course, you know, London's had to be outgoing, exactly. coming from what is a relatively small. Yeah, that's right. Country. In many ways, they haven't needed our capital. It's, yes. it's a huge market. Um, in in London now, less the, it's just ticked up below fifty percent actually now of, of of LSE shares are held by UK based fund managers. Um, again, it's it's diversified internationally. So I think there's, I think I think that's sort of a key differential. Um, uh, be- between us, I think also you know we, we're talking about the London Stock Exchange, but actually, you know, we benefit hugely from an entire system and ecosystem that exists here. It's you know this is not just the London Stock Exchange, right? If it weren't for uh, the network of advisors, uh, the regulatory landscape, you know, government initiatives, um, infrastructure, infrastructure yeah. providers, hundred yes. percent, absolutely. Um, you know, it all works together, right? And and the LSE has a, has its part to play in that. But I don't think at any point in time does everyone think, you know, London is a home for equity capital just because of the exchange, right? We've got a, we've got a part to play in that. Thank you. And um, again, really drawing on some of the comments you, you touched there on, on AIM. Yeah. Um, so how does the London Stock Exchange look to promote AIM internationally, um, for example, as an alternative to, to NASDAQ? So I think, um, so I think uh, we, we, I guess the, 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 cha- the difference with NASDAQ is that NASDAQ serves the entire range of, 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 of companies in terms of market capitalization. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have a specialization in a certain market cap, right? So there are, you know, um, some of the world's, you know, largest companies are actually listed on, are listed on NASDAQ. Whereas with AIM, we've got this we've got this focus of small and mid cap companies, um, and there's a there's a, a belief there that these companies need a bespoke capital markets environment in order to thrive, um, and that the sets of um, regulation and advisors that sit around those companies um, needs to be tailored to that that community um, and obviously the hope is that those companies then grow on that market and eventually move move, move to the main market once they're of once they're of a certain a certain size um, you know if you look if you look at aim as a market it's it's celebrating its 25th anniversary next year um, it's now got about 40 percent of all the companies that are listed on the LSE are listed on on our aim market um, and the, the starting point for it was almost with a blank sheet of paper, what is the regulatory environment that these companies, these companies need in order to thrive? So you want it to be flexible enough that it can accommodate these growing companies whilst being robust enough that it provides shareholder protection um, and indeed attracts investors into the market, both retail and importantly institutional investors as well. Um, and so it's a more flexible regime, um, uh, you know, a far less prescriptive regime 
um, but one that is still has the respect of the institutional fund managers, and that's that's the balance that that that, that naturally has been has been has been struck um, in that market. Last year, I think it was over seventy percent of all the growth capital raised around Europe was raised on AIM. So I mean that is a pretty unique, um, pretty unique market. Um, we're often asked, actually, by other um, exchange groups and and governments, you know, how can we replicate AIM? And the challenge of replicating AIM is that yes, again, you've got the market, you know, that that the that the, um, the exchange uh, regulates, but actually, it's the entire ecosystem that surrounds the market that makes it thrive. So. You have the nomad community um, who are licensed by the exchange and and and, and are responsible for for um, making sure that companies adhere to their their listing requirements. Um, you have investors that have dedicated small and mid cap funds. That you know, you, you if you're a small company meeting these investors, you're not a tiny fish in a big a big pool with these investors, right? They're, 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 these investors are dedicated to looking at these at these companies. Um, you have an analyst community and a brokerage community that's been built up around it. So, it, it, in truth, it's quite it's quite hard to replicate, and that's why companies why companies choose to access it. What we what we often hear around, uh, particularly small and mid cap companies, um, whether they're going they're considering Nasdaq specifically or any other exchange, to be honest with you, um, is that trying to get the attention. Of fund managers, you know, investment banks, research analysts can be quite challenging if you're not of a certain size. Um, and I think AIM provides that um, that home to those companies um, without without some of those challenges. And would you say your focus has changed over recent years in terms of specifically targeting international companies on AIM? Obviously, there's been a huge success in attracting particularly American companies to aim um, and the rules obviously accommodate that around any US restrictions Mm. um, securities law restrictions and things like that and the infrastructure once again has been developed to support that Um, but is that a more recent development or has AIM got a long heritage of attracting international businesses? So it it has a long heritage um, of attracting international businesses although I think what we're seeing you know uh, what we've seen over recent years from the exchange has been the prevalence of international companies coming in continues to grow. And, and actually, the way the team is structured, we don't divide the team up between AIM and the main market. Actually, we've now got representatives in you know, the majority of countries that you would expect us to have representatives in around the world. Um, and they are sector agnostic and size agnostic and mar- market agnostic. So they can meet with a company and they can talk about holistically all of the all of the offerings that London has from a capital markets perspective. Um, we're definitely, though, seeing, um, I think, particularly in the emerging markets, more interest to access um, London as a whole. And then once you get into the international companies accessing London as a whole, the natural, you know, the natural talking point then goes on to, well, if you're a company of a certain size, what market is right for you? And AIM is increasingly coming up in that, mm. um, in that conversation, because I think, uh, you know, the, the, the international profile now of AIM, we've noticed, certainly has been growing over recent years. Um, you know, and I think that's something that we're quite that we're quite proud of. I mean, so, uh, no, it's not, not necessarily an area for for you, but and slightly off piece. But to what extent do you think companies use a listing not just as a um, 
not just as a, a venue to raise capital, but also as a, a marketing tool in and of itself. Of course, you, you give the LSE stamp to issuers when they join their markets. Is, is, is that something that ever comes up in conversations? Or yeah. would you obviously capital is a prime driver, but... Uh, it, it is. I think, I think profile um, is, is something that um, people are very focused on. Um, and I think that's something that... Um, you know there is a there is a prestige factor um, that comes with being listed um, listed in London, and um, so we certainly see that, and um, and also what we see is uh, and linked to that profile point, um, uh, I think the desire to be in a globally recognised index for those companies that are eligible, like the FTSE, um, you know FTSE UK series is something that um, is a talking point quite a quite a lot. I think that. You know, if you think about the trends of, of asset management at the moment, you're seeing quite strong flows into um, uh, into passive, um, and therefore the importance of being in a globally recognised benchmark. I think are, I think are only growing. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I get daily emails quoting passive is massive. It's um, it's obviously a growing trend, and and just by a matter of process, brings a huge amount of of interest um, as soon as you as soon as you qualify for that index yeah i think that's right i think that's exactly right um and then the other thing to note is that that the, we also see companies that want to list in london because they want to use their listed paper as an acquisition currency um and that's that's something that we see quite frequently um london listed paper has been used in more countries um over the last i think since 2016 from memory than any other listed paper globally um, and this it's certainly given the flow of M and A we've seen recently, that's an amazing stat and slightly contrary probably to expectations. Um, is it that UK listed companies tend to do share based acquisitions as opposed to a, a currency one? I mean, uh, once again, another result of the standing of London is that global market. Yeah, well, I, th- I think it is. I think it's, I think it's two factors sort of working together. You've got um, companies listed in London, you know, operating internationally, right? You know, we've now got our companies are operating in over a hundred countries around the world. It's a huge amount, and therefore they're more, just simply more likely to do cross-border M and A activity because they've got operations in these countries. Um, and then it's combined with you know, if you're going to if you're going to buy a company, you're going to use your listed paper. Well, the seller has to be willing to accept your listed paper. Um, and if you're going to be paid in shares, you want to know that the rule of law and the regulatory framework um, around uh, those shares. Um, is robust, um, and you know I think you don't you don't find too many markets around the world where a regulatory framework is as respected as it is in in, in the UK. So I think that's an, another natural advantage that we have. Thank you, um, and Jen, just really looking more generally um, at economic climate at the moment, can you give us any thoughts as to where you see? The outlook for the primary markets over the next, say, six to twelve months. Yeah, I think you've seen. Um, I, I, if you look, back, if you look at the first half of this year as an example, you've seen um, IPO activity around the world has been down, down twenty two percent in H one. Um, that translates into follow on activity as well. Follow on activity was down eleven percent in 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 H one. Um, some regions have been hit sort of um, more than others. Um, so. IPO volumes in Europe, for instance, were down fifty six percent in H one, um, and I think you know the, the, the reasons for these is kind of is kind of um, self evident. You've got um, 
You've got US-China trade disputes going on at the moment. You've clearly got Brexit in the UK. You've got um, concerns over GDP in, in, in many of the, the developed and developing uh, developing markets. Um, uh, London and all that, by the way, has fed fairly well. Uh, IPO activity by capital raises is actually up 35% in H1, um, driven by a lot of these international companies coming in. Now, I think, I think the trend that we see is um, because of all of this volatility, um, you are seeing companies that ordinarily would have been preparing for an IPO wanting to see a little bit more stability. Um, and therefore, we certainly hope that um, once political um, issues do subside, you start to see companies coming, coming back to the market, both for IPOs, but actually also just for primary capital raises. Um, we certainly see that pipeline, that pipeline building, slowly but surely. <laughs> Thank you, Charlie. And finally, oh, and I should say, actually, sorry, the last point on that is the other thing that we have seen has been, um, if you look at the, the transactions that have been getting done, they've actually been focused at large cap end of the mm-hmm. scale, particularly for IPOs. Um, and I think actually that probably just goes back to this point around investor sentiment in terms of um, you know, political. Um, the but also environment. international businesses as and well. International businesses oh, yeah, earlier this year, yeah. Enabler, um, Network International, to name two. Um, yeah. Yes, that's right. So just less exposed to Brexit as an issue potentially. Um, yeah, I think that's potentially that. I think I think also uh, investors uh, wanting to make sure that they're investing in liquid assets at the moment. Is certainly something that we that we pick up. So, um, you know, our, our hope is that once, um, and I mean this globally, by the way, once uh, political um, political situations stabilise somewhat, um, that you see a little bit more of a reversion to transactions getting done across the market cap landscape. Um, and again, that's something that we're starting to see build in the background. Thank you. And um, final question. We know that IPO activity is significantly down at the moment, but if you are a company who is considering listing on the London Stock Exchange, what, what would you say are perhaps the three key issues that need mm. to be addressed in terms of IPO readiness? Um, so I think um, I think people always underestimate how much time it takes. Um, so I'd always say start early. Um, you know, I'd say leave at least 12 months um, is a good is a good um, is a good run up. Um, I think uh, getting the right advisors on board early um, is is really crucial. Um, people who have the right experience and are going to show the right level of dedication to to you know, getting the getting the transaction done is really important. Um, and I think also actually uh, appointing advisors who you want to spend time with or who you don't mind spending time with because you're going to be spending a huge amount of time with them. Uh, often until late in the evening. So I think um, a point well qualified, well dedicated, and advisors that you that you get on with is crucial. Um, I think one of the things that we see people leaving till quite late in the day often is actually board appointments. Um, you know, I think identifying what the board structure is going to be in a post IPO environment, um, and trying to do it early and trying to. You know, get the right people on board and giving them time to understand the business whilst you're still private, um, so that by the time that you get to the IPO, they're able to you know, represent that they that they know the company and that they've 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 had their time to do due diligence. I think is important. I think investors are increasingly looking at that. 
looking to see you know when were the directors appointed and and um, making sure that the corporate governance aspect of the company is 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 sound. Um, so yeah, I think um, I think those are those are all important things. I think also just making sure you've got the right level of resource internally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it 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 does take up time. It's hopefully well worth it um, uh, with the benefit of hindsight. But I think trying to staff up um, appropriately is a is a is a good is a good thing to do. Yes, but. Um... Yes, the the other characterise it as a the start of a journey as well. The IPO is not a, an endpoint in and of itself. It, it's the start of a journey as a listed company and a start of you know, the access to the, all of the benefits you spoke about earlier. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you very much to both our speakers. That's all we've got time for today. Um, so, obviously, apart from Kit, I'd like to particularly thank. Charlie, our external speaker from the London Stock Exchange, I think you've painted an extremely compelling case um, for why London Stock Exchange should be perceived as a listing venue of choice. Um, For me, I think as as well as the uh, robust regulatory structure and the proliferation of, of experienced advisors in the UK, what particularly came across for me was the ability of the London Stock Exchange to accommodate bespoke offerings um, and to really work with the company to achieve what is appropriate for its particular circumstances thank you very much you're very welcome thank you for listening check out the podcast description for more information on this episode's guests and presenters and if you want to get in touch with any of us we'd love to hear from you